Welcome to Are You Asking? I'm going to get out of that light, too. Hold on. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> we doing okay? Second week in? So, too late to ask how summer was? Is that When did that stop? Like a couple days ago? After the second day? We were tired of that already? Okay, okay. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Sid Druin, and I'm the RUF campus minister. Uh, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve Davidson, to serve you all, whoever you are and wherever you are. Um, what this means is that RUF is not just for one kind of person. Um, it's supposed to be for every kind of person. You know, so whether whatever scene you've already kind of developed on campus, if you're a first year or if you've been in, on campus for a while, whatever scene you're from, whatever personal background that you're from, we hope that you feel welcome here, and our goal is that you feel welcome. Even kind of wherever you are with Jesus or Christianity right now, we hope you feel welcome. Whether you're exploring or a spiritual skeptic, whether you're unconvinced or whether you're a believer and convinced that Jesus is true. So thanks for coming. We're glad to have you. Before I forget, um, also in the back, Ruben and Rachel are our RUF interns, um, so they would love to meet you too, just like I'd love to meet you. So um, hopefully um, that'll help too. So they're just not, I don't know why you, you guys can sit down if you want to, um, <laughs> but so anyway, you're not to excuse me, that light is like right in my eyes, so I'm going to do the best I can, but anyway, okay, so let's get started. This semester, um, and this is large group, an REF large group. What we're going to look at is the life of Simon Peter. Okay, so we're going to, this whole semester, we're going to look at episodes from the life of Simon Peter. Uh, so next to Jesus of Nazareth, the most detailed, the most chronicled, the most described person in the New Testament is Simon Peter. We know the most about him next to Jesus. Okay, um, Simon Peter is often the spokesperson for the group of people who follow Jesus around for three years and what is modern-day Palestine and Israel. That is the disciples, and he's also the spokesperson for the early church that forms afterwards. And Peter is very close to Jesus. Um, he's basically as close to Jesus uh, as a best friend would be. So like, as, if Jesus had a best friend on earth, which I don't know if he plays that kind of favorite game, uh, he would have Simon Peter as his best friend. I mean, there's a way in which Simon Peter feels like he can speak to Jesus uh, so honestly, uh, and sometimes to his own fault. Uh, and he also sees sides of Jesus that other people don't see. And so I think uh, studying the life of Simon Peter is a great way to get to know who Jesus is and to get to know his church. And also it's a great way to kind of know these two things, these, this person, this institution, in an accessible, personal, and even intimate way. And so that's our hope. Uh, but really for me, Simon Peter has like a special place in my heart. Okay, he's not just like a window that we look through to see Jesus and to see the church. Um, we're calling our series on the life of Simon Peter, Stumbling into a Run. So stumbling into a run. And that's because Peter has faith enough to go after Jesus even when he can't see clearly. Uh, Peter is human enough to catch his foot on a root or two and start to stumble. And he's self-conscious enough to break into a run to cover up his stumble. And finally... Uh, Simon Peter becomes convinced enough to continue running after Jesus and with Jesus. And so all that's to say that it's, Peter shows us it's okay to be in process. 
It's okay uh, to be figuring out who Jesus is and how to follow him. Um, And we also, in the midst of that, watching Simon Peter grow and to be in process and to think about ourselves, we also get to see Jesus, who's like this unlikely friend. He's this unlikely and loyal friend to to Simon Peter through it all. And so that's what we're up to. That's where we're going. Uh, That's our intro. And so uh, Jonathan read the passage earlier. Uh, That was Jonathan Ferguson, by the way. Um, And what we're going to do is we're going to jump right in. So let's look at the first meeting between uh, Simon Peter and Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. But before we go there, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to talk about um, who you are to look at your scripture together, um, to try to think your thoughts after you. Um, I pray that you would be lifted up, Jesus, that you would be more believable and more beautiful to our hearts. Um, Jesus, please don't let us leave this room the same. Help us to wrestle with what you want us to wrestle with in this text. Help us to think about the things that you want us to think about. Help us to to know you better, and ultimately to be known um, by you. We ask these things, we plead them because you promised them in your words to us in the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I think all of us can like instantly relate to this passage about first meetings and first impressions, right? I mean, like some of you have just been doing this for two weeks straight. Yeah, you know, like you already have the stories about trying to remember the name of the person that you met in the line in comments, or you have the person that you met who like really mysteriously had memorized the Wildcat handbook and knew your hometown. I actually had a guy on my soccer team like that. More stories later. But I also really love hearing stories about another kind of first meeting, and that's the meeting between like very ordinary people and celebrities. I don't know if anyone else likes these stories. I find them uh, incredibly compelling because they're always painfully awkward, and I love awkwardness kind of my go-to. Um, have you ever noticed that we always seem to meet these people, these celebrities, in the most uncomfortable places? And we, and I don't know about you, but like I find myself and I find other people saying to the celebrity the exact opposite of what they wanted to say. They end up asking the most ordinary question, or they end up saying something that's kind of slightly insulting. So, um, for instance, I actually met a celebrity in my life, uh, in my younger life, in college, and his name was Brian McBride. I know that dates me a little bit, but Brian McBride was my teenage idol, okay? Brian McBride was the leading goal scorer and captain of the U.S. national soccer team, okay? Brian McBride was this huge deal, and I met him. And of course, my first meeting, my first impression was extremely and painfully awkward. And so I'm gonna go there in our first large group. (laughs) with us all today to do this, because what? why else? Why not? Um, okay, let me set the scene for you. Some of you know this. I played soccer here at Davidson College. Um, played is a strong word. Uh, <laughs> don't want to get the wrong impression. I ate a lot of lasagna. I watched many movies on the team bus, and I occasionally cheered and warmed up the other goalkeeper, because I was second-string goalkeeper. Um, So anyway, through a series of connections, mostly personal networking, and then also my impressive goals against average, because I played a total of 45 minutes in the first season I played. So, you know, I had the last three minutes of every game were not incredibly eventful. So I had a 0.0 goals against average. 
Um, thanks, guys. Thanks. All right, let's pray. Um, <laughs> kidding, kidding. Okay. So, anyway, um, I had this opportunity to scrimmage in the practice with the Major League Soccer team the summer after my freshman year. This, I lived in Columbus, Ohio, and it was the Columbus crew. Uh, so this was kind of a big deal for me, but before you think this is going to be one of those stories where I congratulate myself, let me explain. I was training with this professional soccer team, and it was just completely humbling. We'd play like small side and keep away, and I would be in the middle the whole time, being the ball being kept away from me, right? Or we'd be like, I'd finally get in the goal where I, supposed, where I supposedly belonged, and I wouldn't see the ball until it hit the back of the net after a shot. It was one of those things, um, and it was so humbling, and it was so tough. And then there was the incredible social insecurity at the team locker room. I would spare you those details, except that's where I met my soccer idol, Brian McBride, in the team locker room, and specifically the group shower. <laughs> yes, I'm going there, the first large group, out of the gate. <laughs> Pray for me. Okay, you see I had a particularly bad day of practice, and I waited out all the other players and sneaked my way into the group shower thinking, let's salvage whatever dignity I have left. Um, and was taking a shower. I was scrubbing away all my shame and all my failures of the day. <laughs> Just me. Um, when all of a sudden I heard another shower had blast on right next to me. And I turned in all of my nakedness to behold Brian McBride. <laughs> it gets worse. We made eye contact, and he started to talk to me <laughs> in the shower. Well, friends, I learned something that day in the locker room <laughs> that um, my moment with this soccer idol taught me uh, one thing in particular, and it's how I tend to view myself. I was scared when Brian McBride's turned his attention, fixed his gaze on me, and started to talk to me. I thought when he sees me, when he really gets to know the real me, he's going to completely ignore me or dismiss me. I mean, it's been a summer of that already. He can just, he's just going to heap it on. I mean, there I was literally physically naked, and I couldn't possibly imagine a higher or better person in my mind at the time who would, and I couldn't imagine that he would care about me or that he would see what I could be. And there in our passage is a similar situation. I know no one's naked, okay, calm down. Okay, but in Gospel of John chapter 1, Jesus turns and looks intently at Simon Peter. He sees him to his very depths. Simon is figuratively, figuratively naked before Jesus. And Jesus, a person who's absolutely higher and absolutely better than any celebrity or any other human being that ever lived, this Jesus names what Simon Peter will be. He gives him an identity and a destiny that Simon probably never imagined. Simon is called Cephas, or Peter, or the Rock. So the Gospel writer John draws us into this account, this encounter with Jesus, this first meeting, this first impression, by posing two questions, and they're on your handout. The two questions are to you and to me, through Andrew and through Simon Peter. First, verses 35 through 39, Jesus asks, asks us, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Okay. Second, verses 40 through 42, Jesus asks us, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Okay, so let's begin at the beginning, and let's look at verses 35 through 39 in that first compelling, life-determining question. What are you seeking? What are you after? Okay, so as you turn 
uh, your gaze towards your handout or towards your Bible. I want you to look at the first few verses we have, and in order to understand these, you actually have to take a step back and understand something about John the Baptist and what he's been up to for the last three days of our passage. Okay? Let me, maybe you're familiar with John the Baptist, maybe you're not familiar with John the Baptist, but I just want to say he's really out there. Okay, so, I mean, he's dressing in the equivalent of of a burlap sack, right? He snacks on honey-covered crickets, and he pours river water on people's guilt. That's what he does, right? That's what he's up to. And there's some, but there's this something about him, there's something about his message that people crowd around him and they want to hear more and more from him. And they line up to get his river water treatment, baptism, in droves, in crowds. And according to John's gospel, the thing about, that something about John the Baptist, that's, that's, that, by the way, there's two Johns, John the Baptist, John the gospel writer, I know it's confusing. But anyway, the thing about John the Baptist that draws people is that he calls himself something. He's pointing to somebody else. He calls himself a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That is, John the Baptist is the opening act. Okay, He's not the headliner. He's the opening act for a much bigger, much more important person. The one who he calls the Lord or the Lamb of God, the one who's called Jesus. And so for the last three days, John the Baptist continues to take his place again and again at the same exact stage, in Bethany, on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, in order to wait to announce Jesus. Okay, so this is the third day John is joined by two followers. One's called Andrew, and the other one's unnamed. Lots, most scholars think the unnamed person with Andrew is John, the gospel writer. He's pretty fond of referring to himself like that, not naming himself. But I also think it's likely that the other followers not named in order to give us a doorway, to give us an opening into the story so that we can kind of encounter Jesus in that moment as well. And so there we are, Andrew, John the Baptist, you and me, when verse 36 occurs. Jesus walked by, literally in the original Greek, he is walking by. I think that nod in the present tense is to the reader, to us. Okay? And John the Baptist has this like burst of humility that I, as a professionally religious person, struggle with. Okay? At that moment, he does something that floors me. John the Baptist says, hey, look, there. They're not here. He, not me, is the one worth following. He's the Lamb of God. Go after him. And really, this is the basis of Christianity even today, right? Christianity is not, look at me, follow me, do what I say. Christianity is still and continues to be, look at Jesus, follow him, hear him out. And what John the Baptist, of course, leads in verses 37 and 38 to do is that the disciples with him take off. They go and they follow Jesus instead of John. Okay, But please notice what Jesus does when they start to follow him. He turns around, and he does this to a lot of us. He's likely to do this. He gently turns the tables, and he puts into words our most disarming, our most important questions that we have. Okay, Just one of them. For instance, in verse 38, he asks Andrew, John, the Zebedee boy, and you and me this question. Jesus turns on his heel, looks us in the eye, and asks, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? 
That is, what do you want to know about me? Or actually more broadly, more generally, the big broad question that Jesus asks, he's great at doing this, what do you want? What are you after? These are the very first words that Jesus speaks in John's Gospels, 38 verses into the Gospel. So this is like underlined, bold, italic. What are you seeking? And look, like this is a very familiar question. Maybe we wouldn't put it this way, but we hear a variation of this question every day, almost every day. We sometimes even ask it to ourselves unconsciously under the breath, especially this time of year. It's the question behind what's your major. Do you get that? What are you seeking? The question behind what's your major is what are you seeking? It's the question behind when people ask you, why did you choose Davidson? You see, what are you seeking is the question that drives our drivenness. And we answer that question, what are you seeking, with our personal goals and our life and career ambitions. For some of you, this is a very pressing conscious question, a question that you think about a lot of the time, or at least some of the time. For others of us here, this is not a very conscious question. Okay, it's not on your radar. It's, it's not on your radar by choice or by happenstance. But this question is like pressing on you culturally all the time. Okay? Just think about what career service is about. I mean, some of you have already first year booked an appointment with career services. Okay? Like, I guess they encourage you to do that in orientation. What are you seeking? That's the whole question they're after, right? You have to do like the resume and figure out what you're doing with your summer and your life, et cetera. Okay? What are you seeking step by step? Or even in our North American pop songs. Okay, I'm going to quote one. Let's see if you name it. It's a little old. Before you came into my life, I missed you so bad. So bad. Anybody? <laughs> Call me maybe. Thank you. Okay. So Carly, <laughs> Carly Rae Jepsen's classic. Okay, so, so still rings true to our hearts. Okay, so the point is what, are, what you are seeking is that thing or that person that we miss, that we hope getting will quiet our minds, that we hope will slake our thirst, fill our emptiness, and make us whole again. Sometimes maybe often we don't know exactly what we're seeking until we find it. And I think that's what's going on in this passage. Uh, I imagine that this was the case of John, and, uh, unnamed John and, and Andrew, his friend. Okay? When Jesus turns on his heel and he looks them in the eye and begins to talk, perhaps Andrew... And John and you and me, we start to see what and start to know what drives us to distraction. To quote another pop lyric that's old. And this leads them and possibly us to answer Jesus' questions with another question, which is what? Rabbi, in this passage, which means teacher, where are you staying? So what are you seeking leads to rabbi, where are you staying? And look, in verse 38, it's not even late in the afternoon yet. That happens in verse 39. Um, and it's still just 4 p.m. So why do the followers of Jesus ask Jesus of all the questions, okay, God on earth, okay, this person that John the, John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God, the Lord, the question they ask him is, where are you staying? Are they asking for, like, his home address? Like, I, you know, if I were to send you a postcard, where would I put it? No. Okay, <laughs> what is he, why are they asking that? They're asking that because seeing Jesus and hearing from Jesus isn't enough. It just isn't enough. It's a glimpse of someone so stunning. It's a taste of something so refreshing that they want to swim into it. 
You see, with Jesus, the word staying isn't just a request for a home address. In the Gospels, Jesus stays. He abides. He remains. He lives within the Father. He lives in the Godhead with the Father. Andrew and John immediately and intuitively know that Jesus isn't just uh, someone who tells us how to get to God. He's not just a teacher of the way. They intuitively start to understand that Jesus is the way we get to know God. And that's why they're asking how, where are you staying because your God become man. They're starting to grasp that even just from this little interaction. So they're asking to see the face of God with that question. They're asking to hear his voice. They're asking to feel his very presence, to be quieted, to be filled, to be completed, to have their hearts rest in its ultimate home. Have you ever asked Jesus that question? I know he doesn't live in Bethany on the eastern shore of the Jordan anymore. Okay. But have you ever prayed this? Where are you? What are you up to? I mean, even have you ever just wished upwards in, in Jesus' general direction with this idea in mind? I'll tell you what, do you know what his response always is? Verse 39 tells us Come and you will see. Come and you will see. Look, Jesus is God, an absolute person. He's not primarily a logical conclusion. He's not primarily an experimental data point. God is ultimately personal, and therefore we know him by a personal kind of knowledge. Faith. Not a second-rate kind of knowledge, a uniquely tailored knowledge that helps us to draw near to Jesus. But here's, of course, the question. like, What does drawing near to Jesus look like? Okay. What does it look like in college of all places, in a university setting? And this is why I'm thankful for one of the people I quote every week, C.S. Lewis. Okay? In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis shows us, he tells us how he draws near to Jesus. And it's a very instructive way, whether you never know, whether you would call yourself a Christian, or whether you would feel really uncomfortable calling yourself that right now. Okay? Lewis first draws near to Jesus in a highly personal way, by attempting complete virtue. Okay? He attempts to prefer his neighbor's happiness over his own at every single turn. And his experiment in truly trying to love others leads Lewis to discover, in his words, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds within himself. This discovery of what the Bible often calls sin and its desperate saccharine effects, its syrupy entrapment, leads him to embrace God on his own absolute terms. As the Lamb of God, who John the Baptist earlier qualifies in John chapter 1, who takes away sins just like these, the sins of the world. Okay, so here's how Lewis puts the whole deal, and it's beautiful. Okay, Because some of you are in this moment going, that's not that compelling. But it's true. So here's how he puts it. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene College. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him 
whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in, and I admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility, which will accept a convert even on such terms. Who can duly adore the love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? Oh, the depths of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. You see, Jesus repeats, come and see, come and see, even to the most reluctant among us, even in our most dejected moments, because Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to this earth, to that cross 2,000 years ago, and he can come, even now, to our dejected and reluctant bedrooms, our dorm rooms, whether it's 1929 or 2016. That's the promise of this verse. And so, like C.S. Lewis, Andrew and his unnamed friend, we're thinking the Zebedee boy John, okay, come and see and stay with, with Jesus. And like Lewis, when they do this, when they explore this personal way of knowing him, they find what they're seeking, whether they knew they were seeking it or not. And according to verse 41, the very first thing that Andrew does is he goes and finds his brother, Simon, right? And he tells Simon that he's found what the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, what it calls it, the thing that we are all seeking all of the time. The Old Testament Hebrew word for that is the Messiah. Okay? The Greek word, John tells us for that, is Christ. Okay? Which means the anointed one. Both mean the anointed one in English. The prophet, the priest, the king. And so Andrew's announcement brings Jesus and Simon Peter together now to Simon, soon Peter, together for the first time in that first impression and leads to our second point and our second question, which is what? What do you want to be? What do you want to be? So if you look with me at, verses, at verse 42, we'll see that together, okay? So we're not sure whether Andrew is dragged. Andrew dragged Simon, kind of reluctant and dejected from his bedroom, we don't know whether um, Simon believes Andrew and, and goes willingly and excitedly. We don't know whether, um, you know, Simon's just bored and curious. We have no idea. But we do know that what Jesus says first, and he looks at Simon. The word looked in the original Greek means something more like intentional and piercing than a once-over. Okay. The word looked in the original Greek here okay, means that Simon was looked at by Jesus in a way he'd never been looked at before. The closest approximation I had was being in the shower with Brian McBride. Okay. <laughs> Deep down to his very bottom, okay, to the bowels of his heart and his mind, Jesus sees Simon. Simon is totally exposed, absolutely naked before Jesus. In an effort to put us into that scene even more so, a commentator named Michael Card actually asks us to imagine what Simon Peter 
smelled, looked, and felt like that morning. Okay, after a whole night of fishing. Okay, think about he's a fisherman, he does it at night. So this is what he looked, smelled, and felt like. Before Jesus stood what we should assume was an ordinary-looking man, perhaps about the same age, the pungent smell of the lake mixed with his sweat and the strong smell of fish, earthy, organic, repelling, and somehow attracting all at the same time. Just like Simon himself, he would have no doubt have had a fisherman's rough hands as well. And look, Card's point is just like how ordinary, how unlikely a hero is Simon, especially before Jesus. Sure, like there's some magnificence to him, just like there's anybody, okay? Every single one of us in this room, just like Simon, have a dignity that we're designed with, that's superintended by God the entirety of our lives. But there's also this misery inside Simon and all of us, a restlessness that Simon and we know each morning that we wake up to the same self. And Jesus, in that moment, after that penetrating stare, says, you, you are Simon, the son of John. And I think Simon can say, true, true. And then he says, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That is the rock, or rocky. Okay? What? Like, he's got to be going like, where'd you pull that nickname from, Jesus? Okay, like, what is, where is that coming from? See, you see, G- Jesus names si- who Simon will be, Peter the Rock, but he doesn't do this based on what's there, on Simon's actual character or skill set or external advantages and circumstances. I mean, Simon actually owned a fishing business. I don't know, we'll talk about this more next week. But he was doing pretty well, upperly mobile, middle class. He had some advantages. But it's obvious if we peek ahead to the story that this is not a name based on who Simon will be. Okay, He would have had to call Simon Sandy, not Rocky. Why? Because like a pile of sand, Simon gets scared and he crumbles under pressure. He crumbles under the pressure of peers. He crumbles under the pressure of, of his own stubbornness. In the words of Frederick Beekner, another person I'll quote probably every week, Simon is a rock because he's not the prettiest or the fanciest or the smartest. And sure, he can get rolling in the wrong direction. And when he does, watch out. Okay? Yes, he will sink like a stone when Jesus asks him to walk on the water. And he will break a purposeful, profound silence in an instant, over and over again, like a tide breaking upon a rocky shore. And of course, tears will run down his face like rain rocks, wipes down or runs down a rock face when he betrays Jesus, the night that Jesus needed him most on his crucifixion. Simon boasts that will be the most hollow and his actions will be what fills a child's sandbox. Trivial grains of sand. But... This is what's so beautiful. Jesus authoritatively, definitively sets Simon's identity and destiny, who he will be. Peter the Rock. Because identity and destiny is based on God's calling alone. This is revolutionary. Look, again, to paraphrase Beekner, because I can't help myself. Simon will ultimately be a firm rock upon which Jesus can build his church, because Jesus will make him no nonsense. And once he begins to settle down, he will be there to stay. 
He won't crack easily eventually. And because of Jesus' future promise, he will be tough. And once he's that way, it will be harder and harder to get under the rock's skin. And Jesus will be able to depend on this man, this rock, as much as he can depend on anyone and anything, this side of heaven come to earth. And so the implied question for us is, who does Jesus see you as? Who will you be? Sure, if you're anything like me, under intense scrutiny, you feel like a fistful of sand, don't you? But seeing all this, Jesus chooses to call you and me something far different. He chooses to call us, if we take him at his word, someone new and someone better. His future tense promise and his present tense love, by those two things, we get to be something precious. Living stones. More solidly like Jesus, yet truthfully and uniquely ourselves. Look, I just want you to say, I want to say this, Jesus is in the business of making potential actual. Jesus is in the business of pressing the sand of our potential into the sandstone with which he builds the temple of God. That's what he does. And like Andrew and John, Jesus' questions leads to a very important second follow-up. This question's for us instead of for Jesus, though, right? What identity, what destiny will we choose to live out of? What identity and destiny will we choose to live out of? Will you live your life, will I live my life out of competitive advantage? Will I look at my internal abilities in my external situations and think I can beat the guy next to me? I can beat the girl next to me. I can get the thing that I want. That will be who I am. And I'm just going to tell you this straight up. This is going to be really tough in a place like Davidson. Okay? I don't know if you figure this out yet if you're a first year, but everyone graduated at the top of the class. Everyone believes that hard work is the best thing they can do. Okay? We brag about it in the lobby of the library. That's what we do. Okay? Everyone starts off as pre-med because they want to help people. Everyone already started their service project. They have a new Ada Jenkins they built last week. <laughs> Everybody already secretly plays the French horn and the clarinet and the oboe because they are double-reeded instrument dwellers and players. Somehow, everyone still finds time to be fit and fashionable and effortlessly fun and makes you look like you're sweating, doing nothing. Or will you take Jesus at his word and trust who he's calling you to be? I'm telling you, it's sweet relief to believe that Jesus is in this business. Because no matter how self-confident or inauthentic you feel right now, you're in Jesus' hands. Let me just say this. You know what was so amazing about that awkward, naked moment in the shower with Brian and Pride? (laughs) Is that it made all the difference for me that summer. Okay, so he came into, this, into, the, into my training a couple weeks in, and he saw me absolutely and totally exposed, literally absolutely naked, and he treated me like I belonged there with him, like I was a part of the Columbus crew just as much as he was. The day after our first meeting in the shower, which was incredible, um, the day after that meeting, he spent several practices in a row starting that day 
taking shots on me because he was injured. And then when he got off the injured list, he started to recruit me into scrimmages, even playing as a field player. This is all true story. Okay? I knew Brian McBride was for me. Do you get that? I saw and heard his vision for the kind of player I could be. And it actually made me play better soccer. I'm not going to do the game of life with you, but let me say it this way. All the more do we believe Jesus is for us, that he has a vision for who we will be here at Davidson. Jesus' love and promise can convince us. It's the only thing that can convince us when we crumble and when we stand firm. Would you pray with me? (laughs) Father, um, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to think about just how careful you are with us. How um, you call us into things that we don't even believe. And I pray that you would help us to, to know how much you care about us, to know where you're moving us. And I don't know everyone's story in this room, but you do. I don't know um, the nicknames you have for everyone in this room, the destinies you have for everyone in this room, but you do. And I pray that you would help these, these students, help me to live into the calling, that we're not disqualified by the things that we think disqualify us that we're qualified, that we're able by your love and by your future promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.